You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Aminata Contevija was born in Sierra Leone to a prosperous family. Then in 1999, when she was 18 years old, her life changed completely. That was when the Revolutionary United Front invaded Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, and life would never be the same. Aminata has been through so much, but somehow has come to a place where she's now helping women in her country of birth. Her book, Rising Heart, tells her story, and she joins us now. Hi, Aminata. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. If we could... Let's start at the very beginning. What was your childhood like before the Civil War? My childhood was uh, very joyful. I grew up with my father and with my um, three other siblings. I have other siblings in London who were at a, a boarding school there. But my childhood was very joyous and very protective. My dad was very disciplined and um, strict, as you would say. I went to a really good school. I grew up very privileged and very extremely loved. My father really just um, kept us in in these beautiful protective bubbles, all the children. And I I really never wanted anything, wanted for more. And even though not having my mother with me, I didn't miss that at that time as much because he was present in every moment that we needed him. So um, it's it just a childhood that I, I, when I think of my father and it just brings me so much joy every time. And I, I've been so blessed to have that. And it, it was unusual for you to live with your father, wasn't it, in your culture at that time? Can you explain how that happened, why you were with him and not your mother? Growing up with my father, education was very extremely important to him, but also he knew that especially girls, they would get married and have kids and that was the future and he did not want that future for us. So when my mother and my my dad um, separated, he wanted to have the children with, with him. He just can't let go of any of his children. And... um. I know that would have been difficult for my mom, but he believed that he raising us would let us to have a better education and also have a sort of um, independent for ourselves. But uh, he thought that he believed that if we were raised by our mothers, that we would get married very early and not finish school. So, which was was very unusual, and especially for my father, the women, the girls. His daughters were extremely precious to to him. He wanted the girls not to be part of that norm, that they would just get married and have kids, and that was it. That was part of their life. So education was really one of the the reasons why he wanted us to to yeah to grow up with it with him. And what was he like as a person? Uh, my dad was very quiet. He walked down the street without you knowing who he was because we, as I said, we grew up very well off and people knew of him around our area, but he doesn't like that notice at all. Um, He was the most kindest and most selfless human being that I know. He cared for people that were less. 
he would give his food and he would starve. He really cares for others who were less fortunate. And he always believed that there's no point of having more, a lot if you can't share. And respect, respecting your elders was important. Education was a, a gold. And um, he loved spending time with his children. The only time we watched movie is when we were with our dad and he would bring uh, new movies from London. I remember watching Home Alone over and over and uh, watching <laughs> James Bond. You know, we're sort of like this English child. He was very loving. And I always say my dad never, I, I've never heard my dad say how much he like love you or love your, like the things that you hear more in the West, which I do with my children. But we never doubted for one second how much he loved us. And we, we, we saw that in his eyes, but very disciplined, like extremely disciplined. And those are memories that we, we talk about him all the time when we're together with my, my siblings. You describe in the book how the Civil War, civil war in Sierra Leone, um, that there were many people in need and some of those people sought refuge in your own family home. You, during the Civil War, were actually kidnapped and held for months. Did that change the way you felt about helping others? I think for me, helping others had come from seeing what my father did. During the war, when the rebels came to my in the capital city, Freetown, and our house was huge and we were very safe in it. And my dad, growing up, like nobody comes in our compound, like really, like we were protected that nothing can harm us. But when this time has happened and we saw, and he asked us to open the gate, uh, the, the gate of the house for everybody to come in, there were like over a thousand of people in our house, which our dad would, would not do, especially where the children are. I saw that happen. And something that really light for me is that uh, where the house that we lived was huge. It was massive. And then you have all, so we sort of surrounded around people who were poor. But for ha- for that time during the war, when the war was so intense, all the houses around us has been burned down, you know? And this, this sometimes it doesn't make sense to me. And this house, our house that had so many people in it, was left standing there, and for weeks, when the war the war was going on, none of the rebels checked our house. So, being here, I've always known that the goodness of my father, even that time, protected a lot of these people in in our home. Because what the, the rebels would do, they would burn the house, they put petrol, and they would burn the house. And how come all the houses was burned down, and this huge house, which you can spot from the far away, was not touched. So that, for me, is another huge testimony of how being kind and being good can follow you through. And my dad was a great believer of that. He always, we always question why he was he was giving so much to people, and he would say, when you live in a in a, in a far away country one day or wherever you are. If I'm not around, somebody else will look, will look after you. And that's what my life has been. My life has been a miracle since then. I've never really wanted for more. And even if I do, um, miracles just come unexpectedly. And I know it's the goodness of my, my father. So that really is something 
that I wanted to be of service. I wanted to be exactly like him. And and, and if you ask me that when I was a child, I'll be like, I just want to give people money. I want people to go to school because after that's what he did for a job. There was a lot of awful things that happened during the Civil War and um, sexual violence was something that was very endemic throughout the war and it's often been described as an invisible war crime, rape. Do you feel that Sierra Leoneans have a stigma around the discussion of rape and abuse of women? I, I think coming to Australia, it, it really changed my mind, my mind around that because a lot of people were, a lot of girls were raped and I was raped really brutally. And rape is not something anybody wants to talk about. It doesn't matter what part of the world you are. For me, my experience, I grew up in a place where I was protected. It's a war. Uh, rape has been used as a weapon of war. But that was because of what happened. But even here in Australia, I cases anywhere, um, I know Nobody wants to touch rape. And if you've gone through that, that's the last place you want to go to talk about it because there's nothing that you want to revisit. So it's not really um, a serial, you know, African kind of taboo. It's a world taboo because it's, it's something that diminishes you, that took everything from you, somebody to violate your body like that. And it's not something that you want to talk about. We, we all, as humans, want to talk about the joyful things. So for me, coming to Australia and learning about rape, that and I didn't know the word rape even when I was in Africa. I've never heard that word before. So when I came to Australia, I start words start being start becoming a meaning to me because they have names for it here. You understand? So that was very. It was mm. it was totally different to get that. And then as I meet people who have become that, I know one thing I know we all have in common. It doesn't matter what part of what part of the country you, you end up being. When you have been raped, you go through a shame and you go through that isolated uh, loneliness and you go through blaming yourself if that if you have caused something for that to happen. We have that in common. It doesn't matter where that has been done to you. In the book, you, in your introduction to your book, Rising Heart, you write about how you want this book so your children know your true history, that you don't want to keep any secrets from them. Why is that so important to you, given how painful your story is? I, I, for me, I believe that it's important uh, because the reason why I believe a lot of crime are commit, whether it's rape, whether it's any kind of experience, it's because of the silence and people not talking about it. For myself, my story, I have come out and tell my story and that was the shame that I felt. But then I'm feeling ashamed because I don't want somebody to think less of me, but I was the one that was done to. So the more we normalize Mm -hmm. conversation or any conversation that we are facing, we break that. Um, we break that, that 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 chain that has been that has locked those things that people don't talk about. It we don't address it. That it become more of a crime. So my daughter or my son knows what stop is, and when something has been done, and he knows or she knows that she has a responsibility. And those are things that you can call out. Like a lot of things you can call out. This name, there's name for it, but you're not allowed to. You know what I mean? 
because of the conversation around it and how people make people feel uncomfortable. Well, that's what fear does. And I do not want to live in fear because for a long time I was silenced and I knew what that did to me. And me speaking up, it is difficult. It's not, it's not fun, but that has happened already to me. And not every woman has to do what I'm doing. But I know when I speak of rape, and when I say it, it's a word that I, I never used to say. When I say it, I know that there are other women or men that would know that somebody has spoken that word for them. That will continue, and my children know better that they will do better when things when they're present or when they know of those things. So those are the reasons. Now, um, you were eventually released from your kidnappers, and you ended up in Australia as a refugee. I can't imagine how different that was from where you had been. Can you tell us what it was like coming to Australia as a refugee? Coming to Australia, first of all, I did not know where I was coming. Um, I thought I was coming to Austria. Mm. And and then yeah, <laughs> I thought I was coming to Austria because I deliberately chose to come to Australia. Um, I had a choice because the the, the rebel that kidnapped me, my life was in danger, was looking for me because he was very obsessed with me. So I had a choice to go to Canada, um, the US and, and the UK. But I didn't want to be recognized because the way I was released, I was on television. I didn't want to be recognized. And I also wanted to come to a country that I've never heard of and that there was no too much, for, as far as I, um, I was concerned, um, there was no Sierra Leonean. Um, here. So the group of Sierra Leone mm-hmm. that I was coming with, that we came together, they didn't know of my story. So I knew people would not know of my story. And I just wanted to start fresh. I wanted people to help me, not based on my story. So it took me a long time for my story to come out. I didn't want people to have pity on me in helping me. So those were the reasons. So when I end up here, mm-hmm. I was safe in this beautiful country. I arrived 2000 in May. And then I got here. Then I go like, what am I doing here? And everything was different. Yes, because <laughs> nobody. first of all, nobody looks like me, which is fine. I knew where I was coming. But uh, I had to go to school. I had to do everything for myself. I was on Centrelink. I was paying my rent. And I've gone through this, this, this big life of what has happened to me. But then I don't even have a word for it. And then I come here and they said, I'm traumatized. I'm like, what is that word? And then um, I have to realized that, oh, I'm a black woman. What does black mean? And I, I remember seeing Catherine Freeman, it was during the Olympics, and I was so happy that there was the one black woman on television. And I remember she was running, like, seriously, all, I remember all the civil union, we were together all the time watching the Olympics, and our heart just stopped, because we thought she was African. I didn't know about Aboriginal. <laughs> I don't know about all the things. So all of a sudden, I'm I have to I'm in a jungle again. I wanted to go back. I really wanted to go back, and I, I missed my dad. You know, my dad was in London then having treatment, so I missed my dad. I said, okay, maybe I can go from here to London, because um it was quite it was quite lonely, and um and I don't know how to say lonely because I don't know what lonely means. But I was feeling it, but I don't have a word for it. And then you you go into all this experience that you don't have a word, but you wanted to be safe. But then safety feels different here. So for me, I think this is why I'm very passionate about refugees, the UNHCR and migrants, because we come to a beautiful country like this, but I never wanted to come to the West because I was happy where I was. It was just war, you know, and I've already 
childhood. Mm. So for me, it's really extremely important that we tell these stories because there are people, refugees like I, who were, who were doctors, and then war happened. And I, and I, I Australia need to know those stories and put human into the phases that they, they come across. When you had your daughter, Serafina, you had an epiphany. Can you tell us what happened? So um, I ha- I was pre- when I was pregnant with my daughter, um, she was uh, late for 10 days. But by then, um, they never checked the weight of my baby because I was very, I have a very small petite waistline, my pelvis. Mm-hmm. So we, she was late and then we went to the doctor to have her. And um, she was five kilos, so they didn't check the weight until late. Um, oh I know she was like a Buddha, like a Buddha baby. She came out and people thinking, "Oh, she's so cute." I'm like, "This is not cute." This is not, this is not what cute look like? And um, the doctors have used vacuum. They've used every tool in equipment possible for them to pull her out. It was not happening. And I remember a, a doctor at the time. The head of the doctor was visiting. It was a Saturday, and she came in. She saw the position. And she didn't have time to wear gloves. And she went in and just pulled her because I was in that bad Just wow. jacked her out and just pulled her out. And she injured her hand, her right hand. So my daughter's hand is sort of uneven. You can't see it properly. But we saw physio for over three years. Um, she almost wow. lost her. If I was in Sierra Leone, I would have died. She would have died. There are, I had seven doctors in the room. And in Sierra Leone, there's one in eight women and babies would die through childbirth. And in in Australia, it's one to 8,700. And for me, wow. when I came out of that, my daughter was the most perfect, even though her hand was flip-flop, like there was nothing there. They didn't know if it was ever going to be recovered. She was perfect. And um, coming home, I looked at my daughter, and I remember one, I will never forget, I went to look at her. She was peaceful. She was so, she slept well, she ate well. And she was the most important child to me. And after looking at videos of maternal health and seeing this horror of a story, and I'm living in Australia, and I looked at her sleeping, and I just knew she's the most important child to me, but she's not important than anybody else's child. And for me, I really, inside me, something lit up. I don't know what, but there was a light um, that says you can do, there's something there. I didn't know what, but I said, if I can share this women's story, because by then I was an ambassador for UNHCR and I've created this network. And if I could do something by sharing this women's story of my homeland, that I didn't even know what this word meant, maternal mortality or infant, I could I could share this. I don't know what was going to come out of it. It was not really to set up a foundation. For me, it's just the injustice that a mother and a baby can die just because of poverty. And with that foundation, you have gone back to your country of birth. What was that like the first time after you'd come here as a refugee? Uh it was, it was, I went to my country in 2005 and that was just me being lost in Australia. After finished school, I don't know what to do with my life. Um, just confused. But when I went 2016, I went to the SBS deadline. They did a documentary on my, on me with the foundation that I've set up, Daughter of Sierra Leone. 
And when I went, I really honestly didn't have any expectation. And I, I think I got that for my dad. I just wanted to go and help. I don't have family member in Sierra Leone. I really went there just to go like, I want to contribute part of this work that this hospital is doing. I want to be part of it. And I didn't know what was in for me. So when I went, um, I was not overwhelmed of anything. It was the people, the country, the people, the Cyrillian people that was very, really shocked or amazed that I was going to support because they used to a Western person, a white person going there to help. So they were very surprised that um, you're coming to help, you're coming to... So for me, that was a feeling that I didn't expect it. Um, I was very joyful because in a way, without that expectation, I got something that I didn't ask for was a, a, a girl who looked at me and said, if she can do it, I can do it. And that really felt me up. It was like I've, been, I've won a billion dollar lottery. I didn't expect that. And, and that, that feeling, I always want to go back to that, to know that I can be part of that. I didn't, I'm not saving life. I am part of a contribution of humanity. And um, if it feels, we all know that when we do something kind, it returns back. That means feeling good. And that, that was a good feeling that I didn't expect because I didn't, it was not my purpose of doing, of creating the Aminata Foundation. Well, you're doing amazing work, Aminata, and um, congratulations on your book. And thank you so much for speaking with us thank today. Thank you so much for um, uh, having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. That's Aminata Conte-Bijer. She's the author of Rising Heart, and there'll be links to Aminata's book and her foundation in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.